God is always calling you to the bigger picture. Adventure Through the Bible Podcast. My name is Matt. Joining me today are our friends Tracy. Good morning. Shift it up today. And Karen. Hello. Hello. Amy will not be with us. She apparently has other stuff going on today. So she will not be with us and, and enjoying this amazing time of study. I was going to try to put a time on it, but these never go as the way we think they're going to. So... <laughs> we never know how long these are going to go. Oh, gosh. Hey, did anything uh, exciting happen to anybody, anybody this week? Gracious. <laughs> I assume that's directed at me. Well, you know, whoever. <laughs> I mean, Tracy might have had an exciting week. I don't know. <laughs> I did. Matter of fact, my youngest is getting ready to graduate from the eighth grade. Wait, yes. How does that happen? Transition period for him. So they had to do their little exit exit interview and um he came off with a, a basketball proverb that was very fitting that made me actually uh sit down and contemplate that he's getting older he's mm-hmm. moving on and getting some wisdom underneath his belt he said um something to the effect of uh, calm seas do not make a strong sailor it's the rough seas that that fashion him for life it's like wow okay has he been reading memes on the internet? <laughs> Probably. He's, especially, too, since he said it from his favorite basketball player, which I thought, uh, I don't know if he knows anything about rough seas, but apparently he does. So, Who's um, his favorite basketball player? It's the, He likes the Golden State Warriors. So ah. we've been a Warriors fan since we lived there in, in the um, early 90s. So he's, his uh, favorite is uh, Steph Curry and um, Clay Thompson. That's sports. I hear words, but I understand none of it. <laughs> so, apparently so basketball is the one where there's the hoops that are sort of hung at there the end go. of each end of the, yeah. yeah that's Robert basketball. Naismith and some peach baskets, but it's evolved a long way, but, you know, hey. <laughs> um, so hopefully I told his mom he's not preparing us for a rough season in high school, so I'm not going to put that out to the universe, and we're going to take it as a positive that um, he's going to yeah, grow and mature. Yeah, Dad, he's getting ready to grow your character. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That was a warning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Well, my oldest is, my youngest, I should say, is <laughs> growing up too, because we've been having to talk him off the ledge of trying to think that we're going to buy him a Corvette for uh, for his <laughs> for his first car when he turned 16. We're like, no, no, yeah. that's not that's not happening. He's like, but I found one for seven thousand dollars. No, <laughs> you're not getting a you're not getting a Corvette. <laughs> so you you let him know that I live in the town where the Corvettes are made. Oh, he'll. And if he wants to come out here and go shopping, I'll take him shopping. You're, well, if you want to, if you want to buy, no, the I, car, I didn't say anything about buying. Oh, okay. I <laughs> say we'll let you pay for the insurance. And <laughs> no, I don't know. Just... That factory puts out some pretty hot little numbers. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But just the idea of a—I mean, he's not 16 yet, but just the idea of a 16-year-old getting behind the wheel of a Corvette for the first time is—he's giving you a chance to save, Dad. He's building your character. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, that's terrifying. So my daughter is now grown, but when she she still says this, but for many of her growing up years, like starting middle school, early high school type of thing, she would see a hot car and she would go, oh my goodness, I should buy that. It matches my dress. <laughs> and considering she's not much of a dress wearer, that was particularly hilarious because she was just saying it, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm telling you, the, the Corvettes that they put out in this town where I work, it's the town where I work, not the town where I live. Those things, you'll see them driving around town and you just, you'll, you'll nearly run your own car, which is much less exciting, off the road, just trying to stare at it like they are something. <laughs> yeah, some of those are pretty nice looking. I don't know. Oh, and new development. Apparently by next year, they're going to be coming out with uh, still, still eight cylinder, still high performance, but electric. What do you guys huh. think of that? I'm just you know. A big fan of electric right now. It's like I'm sitting here watching Kajana do that, and it's he spends more time finding charging stations and charging the car than driving the car. He's probably got more right. uh, more <laughs> miles logged walking than he does driving that car. Yep. Wow. How how does that go with like in a relationship fight? Like I hate you. I'm leaving. I'm I'm never coming back. I I'm I'm gonna leave in an hour when my car has enough charge for me to storm <laughs> out and drive silently away from your house. <laughs> It'd be when, when you want to romp on the gas to make noise because you're angry and it just goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice polite acceleration. Uh oh, somebody's chasing one of those. <laughs> no, until uh, until Corvettes are more than like six inches off the ground. I, I, I don't, I don't, if they make a Corvette SUV, maybe I'll be in, in, in interested because, uh, getting that loaded out down to the ground and then getting back out of the car is not a lot of fun. Oh, spoken like an aging person. I know. I know. I hear that. <clears throat> yep. 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 No, I know. I know. Ah, okay. Well, well, sorry, and, then, and then there's me, my mom fell last yeah. weekend and shattered her, one of her hips and took a bad turn after surgery and 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 it's been a very stressful week and i think i've logged about a million miles onto my poor car driving between my job the house and the hospital which are all in different cities yeah <laughs> whimper <laughs> yeah well but thankfully <laughs> your mom is is uh, recovering and doing doing better than we thought she was earlier in the week oh. so yeah. So thank God for that. Yeah. Karen's been sharing with text with us and <laughs> we're out here in Colorado feeling helpless and she's there in Kentucky and, and, uh, and we're wishing, wishing there was something we could do, but just leaving everything in the hands of medicine and God. So yeah, between her, between her heart acting up and her cognitive yo-yoing, it's been a pretty wild ride. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, but glad that, glad that she's recovering. So and uh, less excitement would be more betterer. So. Anyway, speaking of moms, today's Mother's Day, so happy Mother's Day mm -hmm. to you, Karen. And and I know our listeners won't hear this for a couple of weeks, but happy Mother's Day to you too. So Thanks. and uh, yeah, so uh, to you and your mom, and well, any other mothers listening, mm -hmm. and any other women listening, because uh, we had a really great sermon. I'm going to go way off on a tangent here. We went out and had a really great sermon yesterday from our pastor, just celebrating women in general as mother figures of the world and the ones who who give birth to the image of God. And 
it was it was fantastic. It was so good. I may actually post it on our Facebook page, even though it's not usually my MO to share stuff from our pastor. But um, it was just it was really good. And it was uh, it was a really strong, strong message. So um, nice. Yeah. So anyway, with that, we're like eight minutes in. Sorry, mom. I know that uh, this drives you nuts when we don't get right into it. So because <laughs> I know my mom will listen. <laughs> So let's get into our discussion then. This week we're talking about the book of Ezekiel, chapters 18 through 22. And Karen was very excited about chapter 18 because of some <laughs> interesting interesting phrases that everybody knows and will recognize. Well, okay, so every time I go see a Shakespeare play, right, I spend the first 20 minutes accustom- accustomizing my ears to the language pattern and mm-hmm. wishing they would talk slower. And then once I finally sort of catch that rhythm, I'm always just surprised. Like, oh, I've heard people say that. Oh, I've heard people say that. Oh, I've heard people say that. And and it's like, it's one of those things where you you don't really realize how many of our little sayings, and obviously given all of our accents, we're in the US, mm-hmm. and like how many of the, those Shakespearean bits of, of script have made their way into our daily speaking. Well, but the same is true of Bible verses. Like there, there's always Bible verses that everybody's heard and you're like, yeah, that's really good. But you don't, you just hear it. Like maybe at one point you had to memorize it. And and then since then you say the words, but you don't think about the reference, about where it's from. And then I, like I ran into two of them here in chapter 18 and I was like, oh, oh, I feel like I'm having a Shakespeare moment. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, Ezekiel comes right out, out of the gate. And a phrase comes off. It says, "The is this talking about a a proverb that God does not want the people to use anymore? Where it says the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. So there's a couple right there. We've heard about probably heard about sour grapes, you know, and 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 uh, and your teeth set on edge. But so what this is talking about when it says the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge." What's happening is that children have been getting held responsible for the things that their parents have done, which is different than children suffering consequences for what their parents have done. Apparently, it would seem that a dad would do something and the pun the punishment would go on the kid and and God does not want this to be happening anymore in the land. So that is a couple of popular phrases that we hear a lot. And this is apparently where, where it comes from. You know, this eating sour grapes. You know, if you eat the sour grape and it makes you go, well, they're saying that basically the father's doing it and the kid is the one having to go, eh. And uh, we don't want to, we don't want to be passing down that sort of thing here. Uh, but that was have... taught. Okay. I think it's important to point out that that was taught mm-hmm. spiritually by God to the people. You know, if a father does wrong, the family gets taken out and stoned. We've seen that happen. I think that. In a patriarchal society, which is which is what this was, so I don't think we need to spend a whole lot of time comparing it to now, because, of course, society has shifted over the centuries. They were brought out of slavery, and men were very clearly established at the head of the family, so much so that the entire family was punished if the father did something wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a time and a place for us to think collectively and choose our actions based on what the group that we're responsible for needs rather than individually motivated. 
And then I think there's another time and a place to get into what this chapter is talking about, which is the individual responsibility for sin. So that's I, I do think there's value to both of those things in different times, places, phases of culture, blah, 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 right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but this, this is a very clear transition to individual responsibility for the things that you do. That's the way I read that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and that's a big part of this, this whole chapter is, is individual responsibility, not, not casting your issues off onto somebody else, not blaming other people for what's happened to you, not uh, passing your blame onto other people. Um, but isn't that easier to do? I think we still do that today. If, if there's somebody, you know, a, a <laughs> lot of times or, you know, especially having uh, children and raising children, um, taking that accountability and responsibility isn't always a natural thing. It's easier to blame somebody else. Well, well, my friend did it, so I naturally went along. It's like, so it's really their fault. And it's like, no, I think that's when you have to really, when the rubber hits the road and you tell somebody, you know what, you're accountable and responsibility and responsible for your own actions. And same with Israel. It's like, you did it. You have to suffer the consequences. Let's just get it done. Stop blaming other people. Are you guys familiar with the um, with the idea of um, social contagion? Sounds sort of familiar, but not specifically. So social contagion is it's pretty well proven through, you know, experimental science and social observation. It's a sociology thing. And it's basically the idea that I adapt to my surroundings and what I am surrounded by, I become. So within social groups, the groups of friends tend to stay in marriages about the same length of time. Mm -hmm. In a tight social group, if one couple divorces, the percentage that other couples will divorce exponentially goes up. If a group of friends lives healthy, they all tend to live healthy. If uh, they gain weight, they all tend to gain weight. If they develop... You know, and and you could you can this is a little bit chicken and the egg, like which came first, the mm-hmm. similarity which attracted friendship, which then spawned similar life things, or or is it the other way around? And and I think it's both. I think it's a circle. I think we're attracted to people that are similar to us, and then we also tend to follow our group. I mean, I can't remember the stats off the top of my head, but the the percentage of Increase in similarity is striking. That if one thing happens in a social group, it the others tend to choose doing it. That that is interesting. Interesting, and yeah, I can see, I can see that. But I'm I, just uh, saying that's a real thing. Like yeah. that's a oh, real yeah. thing. That's part of sociology. Yeah, God is really pointing out specifically here about taking personal responsibility. Don't put the blame on other people. Um, of course, it makes me think of the story in Eden. You know, why did you eat the fruit? Well, the woman you gave me gave it to me, you know, and, you know, she, everybody's passing blame onto somebody else for the things that they've done. And, you know, I suppose there's a certain amount of legitimacy to that at times where we can yeah. we can, you know, the circumstances around a thing maybe lead us to feel like we need to do something or we get led into doing something we wouldn't normally do. But I guess the point of it here is that ultimately your actions are your own responsibility. 
I have a firm theory that if you think about it long enough, you can you can pin the blame for anything that has gone wrong on the nearest man. <laughs> okay. I don't know if that's biblical, but I'm living out a lifelong experiment in doing that. So far, I'm at 100%. It takes some creativity, but so far, I'm at 100%. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> Okay, End of podcast. On the That's one way to look at the whole six degrees, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, um, so in this, this, oh, what's the word I want? Self responsibility. You know, God. He has he has an interesting phrase here: "The soul who sins shall die." Mm-hmm. You know, mean, which really only means that the one who commits the sin is going to be the one who is punished for the you know, for that. Because we've seen, we, we we have seen, or a lot of times, well, yes, there were times when the whole family would get would get punished, and I think that was earlier on in the history of Israel where God was trying to establish a principle, and we definitely see that consequences can span generations. Uh, but here it's uh, uh, a principle is definitely being established of you are responsible for what you do. Don't be blaming what you've done on other people. Don't expect somebody else to take the brunt of what you've done. Ultimately, your decisions are your own. And it, it goes on talking about how how you can actually turn from your current situation uh, and move into something completely different. Where it talks about uh, if a man is just, you know, walking in the statutes and all this, he'll live. But if that same man has a son who does bad things, um, that son isn't going to be able to claim the righteousness of his dad. And vice versa, if uh, if the dad is bad and the son decides he's going to be good, the son isn't going to be held responsible for what his dad has done. If a, if a person is living a certain lifestyle and they decide to change, then in God's eyes, the past will be forgotten. Uh, the, those past sins won't be, they won't be held. I don't know how I'm trying to say this because we still have to deal with consequences of the things we do. But there's a difference between dealing with the consequences and God, you know, having to hold it against you and keep you in that state of punishment. So a good person can turn or a bad person can can turn their life around and go bad. A good person can turn their life around as well and go the other direction. And so not only don't blame other people for what you do, but also don't think that what you have done is what you are going to hold to forever or that that you're going to be able to count on what you have done in the past as being your compass forever. You have the opportunity to change if you want to. And that goes either direction. I was thinking, too, I have here kind of scribbled on the side of my notes is that. Once saved, always saved, mm-hmm. you know, and we've we've touched on this point a few times. You know, we look at like characters like maybe Saul, where, you know, just because you are doing right, you can go the opposite way. It's still once again, that um, uh, freedom of choice. Mm-hmm. That yeah. it's it's a constant struggle each and every day to keep your eyes fixed on God and to move in that direction, but it's not a guarantee. Just because mm-hmm. you had 
a great season does not mean that that's how the entire life can go. It's a, a it's constant struggle. Mm-hmm. The image that comes to my mind is is this idea of balancing scales through your life and the idea that, well, you know, if the scales balance out at the end, you're going to be fine. Or if they tip to the good, you're going to be fine. But this is more like, what are you doing right now? How is your life right now? Why are you doing what you're doing right now? Don't count on your good deeds of the past to be what carries you through for the rest of your life, because you have to be, it's a, it's a constant decision of how you're going to live and what you're going to do. And what you're doing now is more important than what you did. Sounds like people try to accuse God of not being fair in some of this too. And God is saying, uh, is it me who's not fair or is it you who's not fair? And um, I think, you know, from our studies, I think we can definitely say that it is God who is fair and it is man who tends to not be fair. Uh, And he says, I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies. Therefore, turn and live. So God would rather have us turn around, come to him, live the life that he has asked us to do for our own good. He doesn't want to have to punish. He doesn't he doesn't want to do that. He would much rather have us live a good life, a fruitful life, than inflict any kind of punishment which is a stark difference from the way a lot of people uh, present God, especially of the Old Testament. All right, so chapter 19, then we start, we get into some uh, parables. And, uh, boy, it seems like, I don't know, it seems to me like it, Ezekiel writes down a whole lot more direct um, messages given from God than some of the other prophets we've read before. But he's given a parable of a mother a lioness specifically with two cubs. And the first cub says becomes a lion, devours men. He's caught in a pit and taken in chains to Egypt. The second cub becomes a lion, catches prey, devours men, destroys cities. And the surrounding nations come against him, trap him in a pit, catch him with or cage him with chains and take him to Babylon. The explanation that I was able to come up with this was basically that this lioness, of course, is the children of Israel, or specifically Judah, or even more specifically Jerusalem. Uh, The first cub was probably talking about Jehoahaz, and the second cub is probably talking about Zedekiah, and that was according to notes that were in my NIV study Bible. And we've seen this play out, where these kings have been conquered by these other nations. You know, I mean, specifically, you know, between... um, Egypt and and uh, uh, Babylon and um, how these kings have have acted out and been dealt with by these other nations. It was fairly straightforward. Not a whole lot there. Uh, I have to confess, I got a little sidetracked in verse 10. It started off, your mother was like a vine in your vineyard planted by the water. And all I could think was Ezekiel's about to make a your mom joke. And then it, and then it turned out he didn't. But <laughs> Your mama is so. <laughs> That's where I went with it. I apologize for that. Wow, Karen. Unbelievable. Oh, by the way, you can snip this in later in the proper place, but all that talk about uh, well known verses in chapter 18, and I never read them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> the first one, the first one is verse 20 uh, The soul who sins shall die. 
son shall not bear the guilt of the father, nor the father bear the guilt of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. That was one of them. And then the other one is verse 32, the last uh, verse of the chapter. For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. It's like that's the continual call. He's not sitting up there angry with his finger right above the lightning bolt button, just waiting for a chance to get us. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. a last resort. And he gets loud and he gets, even by our human standards, kind of destructive sometime, tr- sometimes trying to get our attention. Like mm-hmm. stop being comfortable. The things that you think are foregone conclusions in your human security are actually under my control. I run the world. And no no good parent likes to punish their children. Of course, we'd all rather see them listen, learn, understand that I've been where you are right now. I have a little insight here. So pay attention and and just go the right way so that I don't have to do something drastic to turn you. Or try to turn you, yeah. So that is a that is a that is a powerful that's a powerful statement, a, a powerful verse, a powerful. Uh, I think it's a central, it's a central message that we have been getting from the entire Old Testament. But modern society says the opposite. You know, any punishment is is just someone else imposing their will on you, and no one else has the right to do that, and you have the right, you know, like, my truth has become this subjective thing. Like, my behavior has become this subjective thing, and I'm allowed to do whatever I want as long as that's how I feel. And it's like, okay, if you believe in God, mm-hmm. <laughs> there need to be limits on that train of thought. And, and you know, where you draw those lines is a whole new topic, but you know, the mm-hmm. point is, there is authority in the world. There is a proper way to do things. And we're told over and over in the Bible that our own inclinations don't lead us to the right place. Right. So that gets pretty sticky as a society then is like, or as families, like choosing how your family runs, how your household runs, making local laws, making federal laws. It's like all of these things get involved with that. It's like, where do you draw the lines for your societal laws when you do believe in God, you know, you're not trying to, you're not trying to push religion onto the masses, but there are principles there. There are different principles of normal and healthy. If there is an author, a divine authority figure in charge, than if there aren't, then if there isn't one, does that make sense? Oh yeah. And it's Absolutely. Very, very, very tricky. Mm-hmm. No, I've been, I have, I have seen and taken part in debates many times where, uh, the, the premise is put out there if god doesn't exist then neither does morality because what do you base it upon if if you're basing your opinion or if you're basing your morality only on what you feel is right what is to stop somebody else from going the opposite direction and saying well i think this is right and mm-hmm. you can you can apply that to any action we might take any you know regardless of how noble or how disgusting that we might view it as if you don't have some sort of central authority some higher authority to say this is right and this is wrong then everything else everything is just opinions at that point and each one did what was right in its own eyes <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and it never turned out well right. ever. Yep. they ended up with horses in the temple Using this, using those rooms as stalls. Yeah, horses and 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 other things. Anyway, yeah. tricky stuff. I didn't, I didn't mean to totally sidetrack, no, no, no. but it just. That's what we're all about. 
Sidetracked? Okay. <laughs> Getting sidetracked. Yeah. So, yeah, the second parable then in Ezekiel 19, uh, moving on here, of this mother like a vine, starts out fruitful, planted by water, um, has strong branches. And it says these branches are used as scepters for rulers. So uh, I've never seen a vine with strong enough branches for that. So this is a really strong vine, but it's strong and strong. But this vine then gets plucked up. And the fruit gets dried up by the east wind, which is translated as basically being Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, the branches are consumed by fire and and it's uh, the whole vine is replanted in the wilderness or Babylonia. And so then there's no more fruit, no more strong branches. And um, it says it's consumed by fire, which was then translated as being rebellion by Zedekiah against Babylon. So if we remember the message had been given to to Jerusalem to just surrender to Babylon. If you go with Babylon, you're going to live. You're going to be okay. But then Zedekiah, who was that last king, decided to try to rebel, even though he'd been basically set up by Nebuchadnezzar to be king. But he tried to rebel, and it just didn't work out well for the for the city and Judah. And and so that's what we're seeing here: is this vine once again is Jerusalem, and it's producing. It started out producing strong kings, but eventually they just got taken out. Now, chapter 20 then starts talking about the rebellions of Israel. That's the that's the title given at the beginning of the chapter in my New King James. It starts out, some elders come to Ezekiel and they want to inquire of the Lord, as it said. And God comes right out and says, I will not be inquired of by you. And then he starts to relay to them all the rebellious actions that the children of Israel have had against him. And he starts off with Egypt. Now, this what we read about here about what happened in Egypt seemed like we were getting a little insight into things that we didn't get when Moses was writing about it in Exodus. Uh, we'll see if you guys agree with me here, because it talks about how God had made a covenant with the Israelites in Egypt. This is sounding to me like before, possibly before Moses was called to lead them, God had been working with the with the Israelites in Egypt, trying to get them to not conform to all these customs of where they were living. <laughs> right. See, I, I, I think, too, that was set up from the very beginning because I think it goes back to just we see a small bit of the picture. God sees the whole picture mm -hmm. when he had um, Joseph go there and bring his whole family. They weren't literally in Egypt. They were in the land of Goshen. That's where they were. They mm -hmm. made themselves separate from them. And God wanted them to, wanted them to remain separate. It was part of to me. It was part of the plan to save them during mm -hmm. the famine. But what happened is they, they integrated there and they began to take on the customs of the Egyptians and and it turned on them. You know, what before was, you know, a um, uh, like a symbiotic relationship that made it through the, the, the famine turned into be their downfall and they became, you know, captives and slaves and that kind of thing. And to me, this, I, I have cause and effect written down here that in, when they were wandering through the, the desert, it was, it was, 
they would rebel, they would do something and it would delay their time. You know, we've said this over and over, 11 days is what it should have taken them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, and they were out there 40 years because everything they did, it was like, okay, back to how we started today, accountability and responsibility. You did this. Now you got to learn, you got to pay the price. You got to learn the lesson. You know, you got to take the punishment. And it was 40 years of, of that to get them refined to where he wanted them to go in Canaan. Yeah, it, it was it was seeming to me like like that integration you're talking about. This was happening. This was happening maybe even before they really got taken into slavery in Egypt. They were they were taking on uh, the idolatry and this sort of thing to the point where God was ready to wipe them out right there. But instead, he says, didn't in order to preserve his own name with the Gentiles. So in preserving Israel, God was preserving himself, I suppose you could say. He didn't want the surrounding nations to think that he was going to wipe out these people that he said he was going to, that he had promised something to. And we see this a lot because, well, we didn't see any of this written in Exodus because I really got the impression that this was before the plagues. This was before Moses to where the point where when Moses came to call it, take them out of Egypt, this was God as he reaffirmed the covenant with them instead of wiping them out, was preserving them instead of wiping them out. But, you know, but then I, I look at that and I think in all actuality, he did wipe out the the Israelites mm-hmm. in the desert. He took a whole generation. You guys aren't getting it. So the next generation has to go on. There mm-hmm. was literally only two people that from that generation that went in. Wasn't it Caleb and Joshua? Joshua? Yes. Yes. That's yeah. it. Yeah. He took out the rest of them because they just didn't get it. Yeah. The the adult generation. Yes. Uh-huh. Yep. The ones that had actually been under slavery. Mm-hmm. And my impression of that whole thing is that they were still slaves in their mind, mm-hmm. right? So all the way through the 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 weeks in the wilderness, they're complaining about the food. They're like, oh dear, what do we do now? They've got miracles right in front of them, but they're scared. They get to the border of the promised land and all they see is giants. Mm-hmm. And they're they're afraid. We can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. They're still slaves in their mind. That's yep. that's the way I hear that. And so when God took them back out into the wilderness and had them wandering around and camping for 40 years, yes, he gave them food. Yes, he preserved their clothing and their shoes. Yes, he took care of their needs. But he was waiting for a generation whose minds were stuck in slavery to die off. So that the generation who had been raised out of slavery could come in and perform Mm -hmm. that's kind of i don't know does that make sense that's kind of how i no absolutely absolutely what is it i I was thinking here too and it's just this week it was um and karen you might have to help me out with this one isn't it munchausen syndrome yes yes it is you end up siding with your oppressors and and i i look at that and i think how many times did we read that that Every time things would go bad when they were wandering through the desert, maybe we should just go back. Well, wait a second. I think I might have said that wrong. Munchausen is when you have a sick parent who right, is that's right. to their child. It's Stockholm syndrome, Stockholm syndrome. is where okay. you're a yep, captive, exactly. you're being badly treated, and you end up sympathizing with your yes, yes. 
And it was like, you know, but we saw that every time things would go bad or it would become hard. We want to go back. We want to go back. It maybe mm-hmm. slavery wasn't that bad. There were onions and 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 lem and uh, melons. I like onions and melons. Can we you go know, back? And I, and I go back, and there's a phrase out there that says sometimes, "Free your mind, and your butt will follow." Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> can't help it. You know, and that's kind of what I was like referring to when I was reading this. It was like they couldn't get over that, mm-hmm. and it's like this. Let me just tell you, this is the reason, and God has pointed out that you have. You've constantly come up against me, and I've constantly had to, you know, rebu- rebuke you, and you're just not getting it. So I've given you ample time to learn this. Mm-hmm. You yeah. know, and I think it's just with our children. You never told me that. Are you kidding me? You're kidding me, right? I'm, I tell you this every day, yeah. you know, and it's they're just not taking that accountability and responsibility. Yeah, I, I love it. I remember when my son was a teenager, he was still, even as a teenager, he hadn't transitioned from obedience to responsibility. And it was making me crazy. And I I just couldn't get him to take that step of maturity. It was all like this kind of contest of wills between him and I. And what could he get away with? And could he pull pull the wool over my eyes one more time? And ha, ha, ha. And and finally, I, oh, man, one time I walked him into his his, his bathroom downstairs and I, and I put him in front of the mirror and I said, I'm not your enemy. At the end of the day, you don't answer to me. This is who you answer to. Do you like yourself? Do you respect yourself? Are you growing up to be a good man? Stand here and have a conversation with yourself. I'm leaving. And I just left him standing there. I have no idea what he did with that, but I could I couldn't take it. Like there was so much like power contest between he and I, and that is immaturity. Right. If all I see is incoming authority, block, deflect, rebel. Right. Like if that's all I see, that's a problem. And it's a problem in my head. Mm-hmm. Well, the, these rebellions that God start, is talking about with them, he breaks into, I think it was basically like four different times. So they rebelled while they were in Egypt. They rebelled while they were in the wilderness. Then, like you said, that generation died out. Then those children in the wilderness, they rebelled. And then even when they finally got brought into the promised land, they continued to rebel. But it was like, it seemed, the way I was reading this is every time they would get to a point where God was like, I ought to just wipe these guys out. But instead what he did every time was renewed the covenant and moved them into a different place. It was always instead of of destruction, it was always reminding them of the covenant. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. He would give them the statutes and things. And he always said, uh, the statutes and judgment, he said, which if a man does, he shall live by them. So a reminder that if you just listen to God, he's giving you, he's handing you the means of life, the means of survival. But they didn't listen. He was talking about, I gave him my Sabbaths. He says, this is a sign between them and me that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. And we see that repeated with them in the wilderness. We see that repeated with the children in the wilderness. And even when they get into, finally into the, the promised land, they just, they're like, okay, thanks. And they chuck it over their over their shoulder. But Rather than destruction, every time God renews the covenant with them. And I found that fascinating that 
instead of just giving up, he just was like, let's start over. Let's just start over. And he just kept moving it in the direction that he's trying to get him to take. But to the point now, when they're coming to Ezekiel and they're wanting to ask God something, they've rebelled so much that God is like, no, no. What's the point? I'm not I'm not going to do it. You don't you don't you don't get to you don't get to ask me anything right now. But God does promise that he's going to restore Israel. He says, I will rule over you. I will bring you out from where you're scattered. I'll plead my case with you, just as I pleaded my case with your fathers. I'll purge the rebels from you. I, if you, uh, so I mean, here again, we're going to start over, and this is good. This is really good. He says, if you're not going to obey me, then just go worship your idols. Don't bother coming to me. Just go worship your idols. Just, just do it. Just do that. But he says, Israel will serve me. I'll accept you. And be hallowed. How did he put it? I I will accept you and be hallowed in you before the Gentiles. God in the Old Testament wasn't interested only in the Israelites. I know that that's you know that's all the context of what we've been reading is God's dealing with Israel. But you know we've said before where you know He didn't take Abraham into the Promised Land right away because He needed four hundred years to work with the people there to try to get them to opportunity to turn and they didn't it would be so fascinating to know how specifically how god has worked all around the world even especially at that time uh in those in those old days you know how was he working in the eastern countries how was he working you know in what we know as the americas now uh how was he making his presence known how were the people reacting to him um because he clearly is he he's saying here like the way I'm dealing with the Israelites is so that everybody around can see who I am. Everybody around can see, you know, the the justice that God has and the mercy that God has and see that he's not simply acting arbitrarily. And it's not just for his own personal gain either, but just, just, just showing that he's dealing fairly and mercifully with Israel. And he says, you will know that I am the Lord and have dealt you with you for my name's sake and not according to your wicked ways, which is the ways, which is the way that, uh, I mean, that was what they, it's what they, what they deserved. If God was going to deal with them according to what they had would, would done, certainly wouldn't be pretty. And it, 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 he could have wiped them out long before anything happening here. And the chapter finishes off with God talking to Ezekiel, and he says, face south, preach against the forest of the southland. I'm about to set fire to you, and it will consume all your trees. It won't be quenched, and everybody will see that God has kindled it. And so this was more prediction of Babylon moving in from the north, going through the south, and causing that destruction then for Jerusalem. Gosh, I wonder what that's like to be living in a nation and have its end be be fulfilled in prophecy right before your eyes. Think we'll see that? Hmm. <laughs> I wonder. Now. Huh? We're, I feel like we're on the precipice now. I know. it's and, it, and I'm telling you, it gives me, you know, reading Ezekiel gives me a whole different point of view on us reading Daniel and Revelation and Matthew 24, you know, as sort of those like end of time things. I'm like, ooh. 
oh, that might happen next week. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. Now watch the world will last another 180 years or something. Well, there is that because people have been saying. The end is near. Well, yeah, we've been hearing it for decades. What's probably been going on for centuries. Everybody has always thought that their time was the end time and it just seems to get worse and it just seems to get worse. And I remember in the in the 1980s, people telling me God's going to come before the year 2000. And now we're we're in the in the 2020s and he's still not here. So we just don't know, do we? No, but it sure seems like it's looming. I mean, I guess, you know, if we always if we if we just continue to live understanding it's going to happen, it could happen in our lifetime, maybe not. But if we live as if it's going to happen in our lifetime, make sure that we're ready, making sure our oil is full, like the 10 virgin or the well, at least five of the virgins in that parable right. in, in, in the New Testament. Living as if Jesus could come at any moment and not putting it off. That's where we should be. So Eric, our former Eric, one time preached a sermon it was, and, and I'll just summarize it in one sentence. You know, a lot of people spend a bunch of time researching in Revelation and worrying about the bark of the beast, but maybe, maybe they should focus on the seal of God. Worry about yeah. getting the seal of yeah. God. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and I get it. I get it. But nobody wants to accidentally do a thing through, well, I'll use a modern phrase, disinformation. Like get tricked into taking the mark of the beast, and you know now, uh, uh-uh. uh, it's going to be a matter of choice, guys. Like, mm-hmm. it's going to be a matter of choice. You're not going to get, you're not going to get tricked into doing it, and then be like, oh, I wasn't supposed to eat the apple. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't know. No one told me. Now I have to go to hell. No, it's not like that. Right. Right. Yeah. And I don't worry about the seal. Worry about the seal of God, please. Yeah, I don't think it'll be about one little single issue. Uh, or anything like that. It's going to be about, are you following God or not? You know, I think that's what it'll, I think that's what it'll be around. Chapter 21, God is telling Ezekiel, face Jerusalem and pray, preach against the holy places. Tell them I'm against you. Oh man. I, every time I hear God telling them I'm against you, it just, it's just like, it's like a knife in the heart. You know, if if, if you ever heard God say, I'm against you, Oh, that would that would be that'd be so hard to hear. And I know a lot of people sometimes think that God is against them. Not like this, you know, not like this. He talks about how his sword, his sword, of course, we're talking about Babylon, will go from south to north. Or, um, maybe I said that wrong, north to south. But um, it's going to be sharpened and polished. It's going to be given to the slayer to be used against Israel. So so Babylon has been prepared to be God's weapon against Israel. This, uh, this, you know, this kind of speaks to some determination on God's point, uh, part, some uh, preparation on God's part, and definitely some, uh, maybe I already said it, some determination on God's part. <laughs> yes. I probably said that, didn't I? <laughs> you know, but you look through, the, you look at the first 11, 11 verses in this chapter, and he's, to me, it's like he's telling you the process, the thought process of what he's doing. I'm going to sharpen my sword to make mm-hmm. it to make it cut and cut deep and to cut quick. And I'm going to polish it so it's fast as lightning. You know, mm. he's telling you how how fast they're going to basically have world dominion because of me. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I don't know, to me, that's just kind of sends chills down my spine that, you know, that's where we've come. That's where Israel is now. It's like, no. You didn't get it. Now I'm going to use somebody else and I'll show you exactly how 
effectively I can use them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you you get that that image of somebody sitting there sharpening a sword. If you've ever seen them, you know how deliberate you have to be with that, running the stone along it. You get it at the right angle. You take your time. You can't rush it. You just sit there and you prepare it, and then you clean it and shine it up, and you're ready. You know, and uh, uh, this is this is kind of the image that God is trying to put out here. That that um, this is a very deliberate thing. This is a very um, specific thing that's going to happen. Now, when we get uh, into verse 19, it gets it's sort of interesting because God is this is all in vision. He's telling Ezekiel to get two different roads ready here. It says a point two ways for the king of Babylon to go. He can go to Rabbah of the Ammonites or to Jerusalem of Judah. And like when Nebuchadnezzar gets to a signpost, then he's going to make a decision based on divination. And there's all this weird stuff they do of like sort of like drawing arrows out of a quiver as if you're drawing straws and decide somehow you're deciding which way you're going to go. Some other different weird means of divination, which was interesting to me that that God is saying that this is how Nebuchadnezzar is going to do this. And at the same time saying that this is Nebuchadnezzar working um, on God's behalf using methods that aren't typically considered to be God's methods to make. Yeah, decisions. I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Um, but I suppose God can or, or at least, you know, this is how it's going to happen. I guess it's not saying that God is saying that this is how God wants it to happen. Think about the the different ways that God has spoken. Like the the Israelites in the in the priest's breastplate, there was the Urim and the Thummim, the stones mm-hmm. on either side that they used to divine God's answers. They used to draw straws. Mm-hmm. I mean, they 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 would pray. They would pray over the situation, and then they would draw straws. And like if something was going wrong in the camp, and they couldn't figure out who was at fault, they would. They would pray, and then they would draw straws, and they would trust the outcome that God had guided, you know, had had indicated them to the proper person. So, like that whole like divination thing, I kind of am sometimes a little murky. Like, what is, what is, where is the line between wrong divination and okay divination? Because some of the things, like to me, you know, passing judgment on a family via drawing straws is a little odd. Like yeah. the story of Achan after. Um, Jericho when they when he stole the, the silver and the robes and he hid them under his tent it's like mm-hmm. they couldn't figure out what was going on so they drew straws and they narrowed it down well it's this it's this section of the camp and it's this tribe and it's it's this family and then oh like it's this dude mm-hmm. so some of that stuff is very strange to me yeah I wouldn't recommend to anybody necessarily that this is the way to make their decisions but it would seem like sometimes this is the way God would work through these things but like we've said many times, God doesn't necessarily do the same thing twice every time. So in this situation, I guess this was the way God was saying you're going to go to Israel. Although, you know, as we move on through the chapter, though, it sounds like Babylon took out the Ammonites as well. It wasn't like an either or thing somehow. It was more of a, I mean, a, a yes and thing, I think. But I suppose God can work any way he wants to in any given situation. Um, but I would be I would be hesitant to use those methods to try to to, to, to determine God's will. 
um, on a regular basis for sure. Uh, but see how, yeah, not only will he uh, put Jerusalem under siege, but he's also, that sword is going to be used against the Ammonites. And it says, you'll be used for the fire and you shall not be remembered. Uh, talking about um, the Ammonites. Our final chapter, it just doesn't end in a nice place. A lot of times we're fortunate enough to to end end in a in a little nicer place but the final chapter really is just it starts talking about um the sins of jerusalem and how they're going to be dealt with it wasn't a lot of fun to read to be honest it says will you judge the bloody city show her all her abominations this is god talking to to ezekiel show her all her abominations the city sheds blood it makes idols to defile herself it says um, well, and then the people inside it, like in verse six, see how each of the princes of Israel who are in you uses his power to shed blood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In, let's see. And it actually kind of lists it out. In you, they have treated father and mother with contempt. In you, they have oppressed the foreigner and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and desecrated my Sabbaths. In you are slanderers who are bent on shedding blood. In you are those who eat at the mountain shrines and commit lewd acts. In you are those who dishonor your father's bed. In you are those who violate women during their period. What do you guys think of that? Like, what do you, what do you think is the deal with that? When they are ceremonially unclean. What, I mean, like, you're, you guys are dudes. Like, I'm, I'm interested in your perspective. Uh, that is a tough one for me. That's Why a, that's somebody an would want to. Topic. <laughs> okay, we well, don't need don't to get know. off into that. I just was I just was curious. Like that's always like I have my own perspective on that. I was just curious what you guys' was. Okay. In I, you, yeah, one man know. commits a detestable offense with his neighbor's wife, another shamefully defiles his daughter-in-law, and another violates his sister, his own father's daughter. In you are people who accept bribes to shed blood. You take interest and make a profit from the poor. You extort unjust gain from your neighbors, and you have forgotten me. Like that's quite a list. Mm-hmm. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah, it's a lot of things that God has told them not to do specifically. And, you know, all those sexual acts, every one of those there, it's like, a, especially the sexual acts, it's like, a, it's, they're infractions of self-control. I, I kind of think yeah. is the way I see it. Because yep. the, the sec, you know, the other things, well, I don't know. I guess even the sexual things are really against the people, the other, the other party. But, you know, when you talk about the taking bribes and the extortion and these other things. I would say that a lot of sin is self-serving at the expense of others. Yeah. Okay. So so to me, that's not really any different than any other sin. It's self-serving. I want and I don't particularly care who I use or hurt to get this thing that I want because my want is more important than boundaries, other people's wishes, you know, whatever the thing is. Mm-hmm. You know, I think boundaries but, is a good point that you bring up. It's like, you know, that's part of it. It's their rules to live by, but I think they, they go deeper. And it's, once again, the accountability to God. Oh, how far are you willing to go? Are you willing to put away, you know, your carnal needs, desires for a brief moment in time? Or, you know, to live by these laws and statutes to follow me? And yeah. a lot of times it's no. Yeah. So, and and if you look at this list, 
you know, everything here, like the very, the very first one is talking about corruption and power. See how each of the princes of Israel who are in you uses his power to shed blood. Right. And then the very first thing on the list is they have treated father and mother with contempt, oppressed the foreigner, mistreated the fatherless. Right. It's all about injustice to others at my expense. Mm-hmm. And and there and it might be money based. It might be power based. It might be sexual pleasure based. It might be who knows what. But self over others is the root of it. And we all know like that is the root of sin. So it's basically running rampant in all levels of society. So what I get out of that list is that there are no relationships that are clean. Right. Like the government, the governing authority relationships aren't clean. They're in it for what they can get. The business relationships aren't clean. They're in it for what they can get. The family relationships aren't clean. They're in it for what they can get. That's how I hear that. Everything yeah. from everything from the sexual business to you extort unjust gain from your neighbors and you have forgotten me. So, I mean, that's kind of I love I, I actually I actually really like this chapter. So like if you go to verse 17, you get into like sort of like the core of it. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, the people of Israel have become dross to me. All of them are the copper, tin, iron and lead left inside a furnace. They are but the dross of silver. So we're supposed to be the opposite. Right. Remember, remember um, in Revelation says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Yeah. Right. And it, like Peter, it says, you know, was it Peter or James? It says, count yourself fortunate if you are, if you suffer affliction for you are being refined. Mm-hmm. Right. And then here. Instead of being the refined product of life under God, they are the crap that is burned out of pure metal. So it's they are they are being compared to the garbage that gets thrown away or used for lesser products rather than the final purified product, which is what they were supposed to be. I thought that that was just a wonderful analogy. And then it says, so I will gather you in my anger and my wrath and put you inside the city and melt you. I will gather you and I will blow on you in my fiery wrath and you will be melted inside her. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you will be melted inside her and you will know that I have, I the Lord have poured out my wrath on you. Like they have violated every level of society. That's just how they're living. And God's mm-hmm. about to come in and do cleanup and purify what's left of his people instead of them just being the dregs of society, which is the exact opposite of what they're supposed to be. The whole refinement by fire. Mm-hmm. He even says later, he says, her officials within her are like wolves tearing their prey. They shed blood and kill people to make unjust gain. Her prophets whitewash these deeds for them by false visions and lying divinations. Like, it's, this is bad. Mm-hmm. They are not in a good place, and he's going to sort it out. Yeah, the um, the levels to which this this city, these people have sunk is fascinating to me because before reading through all these things, you you sort of expect Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, especially Jerusalem, I guess, to have been this shining example, literally the city on the hill, right? of people to look to um, as an example of how 
how a city, how a society would work under under the principles of God. And when you look and see exactly just how opposite of that they've been, it just makes the sins all that more egregious. It's just, you know, they are they are supposed to be representing God and they are doing just a terrible job of it. But the real bad part about it is the whole time, I think they're still claiming to be his people while they're doing all these other things that it seems like in a lot of ways are even worse than the surrounding nations. I think it was last week, maybe the week before, or fairly recently, maybe, where God was saying, you don't even live up to their standards. You don't live up to mine. You don't live up to theirs. You don't live up to anybody's standards. And so, I mean, it's no wonder that God had to come in and, and clean up clean up house because they're just being terrible. Just, yeah, it's bad. There's nothing good going on here. Yeah. And so, you know, the flip side, well, flip side, but in relation to that, to me then is how interesting it is to me that the Jewish people even today still claim, not claim, they, they hold such proud claim on the fact that they are Jewish and that they are the descendants of these people, the direct descendants of these people who they weren't that great, really. You know, so, I don't I don't mean that to sound anti-Semitic or anything like that, but just they were they were doing everything wrong. So if yeah. you step into this situation without living it right, if you just read yeah. about it, it it comes across as a sudden lurch and like, you know, where is God's sympathy and why doesn't he just reach out to those people and God can do anything and et cetera, et cetera. And I think that, I think this is a key example to remembering that God tries to woo us, but he operates within our free will. So unlike the devil who can play dirty and seduce us by much more aggressive means, God exclusively, like the devil doesn't mind operating by deception. And quite, you know, and quite honestly, we're small and we're easily fooled. Or like we were talking about earlier, like, what about this moment? This surely just this little moment, it would feel so good to you. And it's really not going to hurt anybody, is it? Just do it. And and so you choose the moment over the bigger picture because it's easier and it gives you a moment of pleasure and you just kind of set aside the bigger picture. And God is always calling you to the bigger picture. Like it, it, like on his list of things that they're doing wrong is repeated reference to desecrating his Sabbath. Oh, my. Mm -hmm. Oh, my. But isn't that just as surely idolatry as some of these other things? Absolutely. You know, putting other things before God, you will have no other gods before me. That includes the power in your hands. That includes your sexual practices. That includes your financial practices. That includes your family relationships. It includes everything, mm -hmm. including how you keep his Sabbath. You know, mm -hmm. so I don't know, like, it's really easy to read this and, boy, and go, boy, that's a tough chapter. But but yet this is one of the few chapters where not just the punishment is spelled out, but everything they did to lead up to it. Now, if you go into the New Testament and you read, there's several places where there's lists of behaviors 
that either show up as the fruit of the flesh, right? You, the Galatians, is it Galatians 5 where it has the fruit of the spirit listed? There's also a list of the fruit of the flesh. Mm-hmm. Same thing. You look up those passages that talk about what will be going on at the end of the world when Jesus comes back. There's a list. There's a list of behaviors. You go to Revelation, there's a list of behaviors, a list of character traits that will be thrown to the lake of fire for eternal death. Like, they're startling. There's some stuff in there that's really, really brutal. And then there's some stuff in there that people engage in every single day, perfectly normal people engage in every single day without thinking twice, because we are deceived. And when God steps into the picture and he tries to woo us, he can't deceive. Like, the arrows in his arsenal are big moves and quiet moves with not a whole lot in between, right? Like there's the still small voice and then there's the earth shaking. Okay, you're not hearing me. I'll turn up the volume. And Satan is the entire mass of noise in between. That's mostly Satan. Like, hey, look, something shiny. Hey, look, that thing you want. Well, you can't have the thing you want. How about this as a consolation prize? I mean, you're probably never gonna get the thing you want anyway. Just take the consolation prize, it's fine. You didn't get the raise, just overeat. Just have a beer every night after work. Just have six beers. Just have 12 beers. It'll be fine. <laughs> Your wife doesn't want you. It's okay. That wife, that girl wants you. It doesn't matter if she's someone else's. You just just do that. It doesn't matter. Everything, everything, everything is, is a deception to get you to compromise. And God is the still small voice going, uh-uh, I got a better way. I'm right here inside your heart. I've got a better way. And then when you don't hear that, he starts moving heaven and earth to get your attention. But he always calls to your free will and he can do nothing else. Yeah. And they haven't been listening. Uh, they haven't been listening. To the, and to the point even where the leaders then were misleading uh, as the chapter ends. says you're you talks about priests violating God's law and profaning his holy things. Um, not showing any distinction between holy and holy, clean and unclean. They've hidden their eyes from the Sabbath. And that was interesting, too, how much in our reading today, the Sabbaths kept coming up as that sign between God and the people. And how did they, how did they put it? Uh, but, you know, the sign that God is the authority over these people. And, and they wouldn't pay attention to it. And it's very interesting how a lot of people don't pay attention to it today. They don't think it's important. Let's put it that way where it clearly has been important in the past. And I think it's still important now to uh, to to acknowledge God in that way as the authority. So basically, the prophets, they've been giving false visions. God says, I didn't I didn't give them those visions. They were they were giving you false visions when I wasn't talking to them. And he even says, I was looking for somebody to intercede on your behalf in Judah. And I didn't find anybody. And this was. It, it it just gave me little echoes of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, where it's like, if there's anybody there that I could that that I can save, I'll save them, uh, and I'll save the whole city if you have somebody there who's doing something good, and and uh, couldn't find enough to save the city, and the chapter ends with God saying, therefore I have poured out my indignation on them, so very much like Karen was saying, it's all getting spelled out here for several chapters. You guys have been rebelling against me since forever, since the very beginning, since I, since before I pulled you out of Egypt. It's been a, it's been a constant battle and we're going, and we're going to deal with it. Now you're going to suffer the consequences. Now things have to happen. So I very much appreciate God 
think this is why this is why we're doing this. You know, there can't be any. Oh, why is this happening to me? Of course, I'm sure, you know, these things always still happen, even though people know exactly why. But I really appreciate God spelling it out to them. This is why it's happening. This is why we're doing what we're doing. And yet it's all still in love. It's all still in an act in a, in an effort to correct. It's in an effort to turn them around, um, an effort to preserve them, to preserve a remnant like we've talked about before. Even in the punishment, we can see grace coming from God in this reading, I think. Any it reminds me of that line from the Sermon on the Mount, be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Mm. And the word, the word that's used there, the word for perfect, is used in other places in the New Testament as mature. So perfect in the mm. faith, like grown up. You know, like stop being a child. That's kind of how I mm -hmm. see this, this whole refining process. You know, you've been selected by God. You've been set aside to be an example to the world, to shine his light out to the nations. And this is what you've done with it instead. And I've mm -hmm. tried and tried and tried. And so now I'm going to get loud and I'm going to take you down. And then I will try again to woo you because that's what he always does. Yeah. I like that insight. Be mature. We can take that word perfect and go, oh, we already know we're not. Can't do it. Fail. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't be perfect, so I'm not going to try. But uh, be mature mm -hmm. yep. in it. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. I think that that puts a different perspective on things. And that. one of the biggest elements of maturity is the ability to self-deny the moment for the bigger picture. Like mm -hmm. the, 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 the tendency to wallow in what is before me right now, as if that's the only thing that will ever exist for me, is classic immaturity and yeah, look what we've got going on. Like we can't, we can't even honor a Sabbath, right? The 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 Creator, the the entire reason we exist. We can't even honor a day that respects His authority and reasserts Him as that power over us because we're too busy being distracted by the smaller things that we want to do here. Yeah, it's all it's all all very much maturity based. Mm hmm. Yeah, and I've never heard once heard an argument against against keeping Sabbath that had me convinced that it was for anything other than selfish reasons. It's like, oh, we don't have to. I don't have to do that anymore. And I'm like, well, why would why why don't you want to? You know, why wouldn't you want to do this? Well, it doesn't matter which day. Well, it does. God said it, and that He's the authority, and that's that's part of what's happening here. God is. What is the authority over these people? And these people don't want to listen to anything he's saying to them. They don't want to listen to any of it. We're seeing a repeat today. I guess it's never really gone away. It's just always been a matter of, are you going to listen to God or are you not going to listen to God? And if you listen, are you going to do what he says in order to live like we started out with? Give the statutes so that you could live. They're for, our, they're for our benefit. It's for good purposes. It's not. It's not just because God is in charge, but it's because it's for our benefit. Well, I think that will conclude our time for this week. Next week, we will be reading Ezekiel chapters 23 through 27. So while our listeners are reading that and waiting for us, please remember that you can reach out to us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org with any questions or comments. Uh, and remember, you can look for us on Facebook. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and make sure that you share the podcast with your friends and family and relatives. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thanks for listening.
I'm I'm gathering my thoughts here. Um, this but, takes a while. 